to uh, Summit. If you are new with us um, or you've never been to a Welcome to Summit, can I just really, really, really give you a personal, personal invitation? I would love to. I don't get to meet um, a lot of you or spend any time with you uh, on Sundays especially because we're in and out uh, relatively quickly and I know you have families and things to get to and uh, sometimes maybe somebody's caught me and has my ear for a minute. So uh, th- it would really be good if we could just hang out and have lunch together. And I promise there's no recruiting that goes on. There's no weird, we literally just want to have lunch with you. And uh, we get to tell you a little bit about how we came to be where we are here today as a church. And more importantly, we want to just get to know everybody uh, that comes. Is anybody else here the hum? I don't know if that's us or if that's um, the building or, or what, um, but if our, it's, it's what? It's in my head, okay. Thank you for the vote of confidence. How many of you have um, ever taken a DNA test to find out your exact nationality? Okay, a few, a few, a few of you, so like you, uh, I, I totally gave up my privacy and paid a company to sell my information to a bunch of other companies, all for the privilege of finding out that I am 99.8% European. And um, that breaks down in a few uh, ways. I am 41.3% British and Irish. I am 34.5% French and German, and I am 3.7% Iberian, which I don't even know what that means. I am 0.1% Eastern Asian and Native American, so I would like some of my land back, please, (laughs) and 0.6% Scandinavian. And then the rest, there's about 20% left that says um, broad Northern European and broad Southern European. So kind of mutt DNA made it into me. But I found it interesting that I saw absolutely no genetic markers that I was related to Christ. No, if there's someone in the back, can you move your conversation? Praying. Praying. Okay. I'm going to have, um, yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, There is no genetic markers um, that uh, I am related to Christ. And you might think, well, that would be weird if if, uh, you did see that or if I saw that and you saw that and, and because there probably isn't any genetic markers. But let me read a passage to you because I think it's interesting. Uh, It says in Romans 8, 17, that if uh, it says this in Romans 8, 17, it says this, there we go. If we are children, if we are, now if we are children, then we are heirs. If we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we're God's children, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So that says that we are become the children of God. And not only are we the children of God, not only should we have the genetic markers in our life that we are related to God, but unlike our nationality, unlike our, our actual ethnicity, unlike the 
country of origin, we can't control those numbers. I can't make myself, my last name is German, but I'm more British. My mom's uh, side of the family is British. Uh, I'm more British than I am German, yet my name is German. I can't move those around to accommodate my preferences. I can't become more Native American. I can't become more Asian. I can't become anything else. I can't move those numbers. They are what they are. But unlike that, we can make ourselves more genetically connected to Christ. Because listen to what John the Baptist says in John 3, 30, when teaching his own disciples who were intimidated by the fact that Jesus was getting more attention than John the Baptist did, he said, he must become more and more important and I must become less important. In other translations says, he must become greater as I become less. I must become less so that he can become greater. We must diminish our own DNA our own characteristics, our own behaviors, our own thoughts, our own, our own uh, belief systems, our own values and our own virtues so that more and more of Jesus can make its way into us. So if you, like me, don't think that the way you think and the way you believe and the way you act and the way you process and the way you react especially to culture and politics and the things around us, if you don't think that the DNA of Christ shows up as strongly as we might hope. Because I have seen people who blame their reactions on their ethnicity. Well, I'm Italian, and you know our blood runs hot. Or I'm Irish, you know we love to drink. And I'm German, you know, we love to take over other countries. Like, we can't just keep going around claiming that our nationality is responsible for our behavior unless we are, of course, willing to accept that we can change our DNA and take on the character and the mind and the thoughts and the, the values of Christ. So grab your notes because I want to have a conversation. I really do want it to be a conversation because I want you to be processing and thinking throughout this whole time together. I can increase my Christ-like DNA, and that's what we want to do by number one, keeping a real-time inventory of my virtues versus God's values. <clears throat> my virtues versus God's values. So I'm sure by now everybody, the term they say was coined in about 2015, by, um, I believe he was an author, maybe a professor, <clears throat> talking about virtue signaling. And it's become a rather um, a common vernacular now. And if you don't know what virtue signaling is, it's when um, vocally, especially uh, um, maybe not just vocally in conversations, but more online publicly so that there's no pushback, um, we show how moral or compassionate or empathetic or how, what a good Christian we are or how virtuous we are in any other respect by being outraged by something or vocalizing our, our adamant support for something that's uh, politically hot right now or it's a uh, cultural um, touch point right now where something's being talked about in the press and we want to get on record and let everybody know where we stand. And we do that because we want to let everybody know we're a virtuous person. We stand against this thing or we stand for this thing. 
And it really is using that methodology to simply establish that we're a good person because we say so. And that might be a bit different than having a value. Um, Any one of us, I doubt, would say that we're virtue signaling when we do that. We would claim something more pious and say, I'm, 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 I'm taking a stand so that people know where I stand. On, I want them to know that I, I'm, I'm standing my ground on this. As a Christian, we have the right to say this. And as a Christian, we need to take a stand on this. And um, it is a bit fascinating how when it comes to virtue signaling that we are, we are Christian first. And then when it comes to a lot of other things in our life, we're a an employee first, we're a father first, we're a husband first, we're a a man first, we're a woman first, and then we sort of let the Christian values trail along. But we kind of cover a lot of what we do, taking a stand on things by saying that we're doing it under the the banner of Christianity. But let me contrast, I want to draw a line in the sand if I can and give you some comparisons between what it looks like to be virtuous or to really possess a value that God cares about. A virtue is almost always driven by emotion. It's not stable, it's insecure, it's easily triggered. And when I say easily triggered, when you hear something or see something that evokes an emotion in you, you're quick to make sure that you get on record with your virtue. And it almost always gets angry at anyone challenging it. A value, on the other hand, is it's confident, it's controlled, it's rooted in ancient wisdom. It's rooted beyond something of ourselves and it feels little, if any, need at all to defend itself. Jesus himself when ready to be crucified, was accused of and asked questions and Jesus chose not to defend himself, knowing that he wouldn't penetrate the illogical mind and knowing that if he's speaking a spiritual language and they're hearing it through worldly ears that there probably would be no forward movement. A virtue makes us think other people should change the way they live, right? We, we are in a virtuous world that demands other people change the way they live. And Christians are at the forefront of demanding that of the world. A value is something that makes us think we should change the way we live. See the difference? A virtue is noisy and brash and it needs the validation and approval of others. It looks to gather momentum with saying something that you can rally the online troops to agree with you. But a value runs quiet, it runs deep, and it needs no one's approval to remain a value. A virtue lets the shifting tides of culture stir up what we stand against. An issue that wasn't important a year ago to us is all of a sudden important to us now because culture has brought it to the forefront of our attention. But a value is rooted in the timelessness of God's heart and God's mind. If we are chasing God's values, then they are present and important last year, this year, and in the years to come because the Bible says that God, Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
A virtue makes us sound and behave more like other people. When I see someone virtue signaling, when I see someone taking a stand, I see them doing it along with countless other people who are not unique in that. It just polarizes us to which side we take a stand on. But a value makes us sound and act more like Christ. There were a lot of things Jesus could have taken his time to take a stand on in his years of ministry, and he chose not to. There were those who wanted Jesus to lead a political revolution and overthrow the Roman occupancy of the entire region in which they lived. The Roman occupiers who were oppressing them, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, and Jesus instead deferred to building the kingdom of God. A virtue prompts us to say something. I've got to say something. I just can't sit by quietly, but a value prompts us to serve someone. And I'll tell you, a virtue has no use to God and is useless to the Christ follower, but a value moves us from an intangible idea, a feeling, a thing, and it prompts us into doing something practical and meaningful that actually moves someone. Listen to what it says in James 1, 22 through 26. Put word into action. Another translation will say, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you think hearing is what matters most, you are going to find you have been deceived. If uh, some fail to do what God requires, it's as if they forget uh, forget the word as soon as they hear it. One minute they look in the mirror and the next they forget who they are and what they look like. However, it's possible to open your eyes and take in the beautiful, perfect truth found in God's law of liberty and live by it. If you pursue, put into action that path and actually do what God's commanded, then you will avoid the, I love this, the many distractions that lead to an amnesia of all true things and you will be blessed. And if you put yourself on a pedestal thinking you've become a role model in all things religious, that you're pious and you're righteous and you get to preach to the whole world about how unrighteous they are, but you can't control your mouth, then think again. Your mouth exposes your heart and your religion is useless. So that is so full of stuff. My oversimplification of it in the next few minutes is gonna seem irresponsible. But I do wanna tell you it essentially says this, that you and I, the most dangerous place we can be as followers of Christ is to be consumers of God's word, whether we're reading it, whether we're in a small group learning about it, or whether we're in this service hearing it, we are consumers. And I mean, it is consumption to us. We're gorging on God's word. We're filling ourselves up and we are storing it as intellectual and spiritual fat. And when we become bloated with taking in the calories of God's word and don't actually spend those calories on doing what God's word says, we become immature, arrogant, self-righteous critics of other people. It says that we become religious. We begin to judge other people. We begin to think that we are right all the time, that we have nothing to learn. We begin to become the condemners of the world instead of those who would reach the world with the good news of Christ. 
The opposite perspective of that is to consume the word as we do calories so that we can spend the calories. Listen, doing the kind of things, saying the kind of things, thinking the kind of things that make us the gentle, kind and compassionate heart and mind of Christ where we're increasing the DNA of what Jesus looked like and acted like as he walked the earth and faced things far worse than what we face in our culture. Do you understand that when Jesus walked the earth, the Roman Empire, the culture in which he lived, the, 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 the Greek behavior of that time was far more perverse than anything you've ever seen. There were children prostitutes and it was completely legal and accepted acceptable at the time. There was debauchery of every kind that you could even, you cannot fathom how bad the world was compared to now. And yet we act as if this generation is worse than any generation before. And yet Jesus chose not to speak against most of that. He spoke instead against those who would use religion to beat up on the world instead of respond to the world with compassion. Listen to what 1 John 4.20 says. I hope I make it through this whole thing today. If someone claims, I love that, claims, not not telling the truth, I love God, but hates his brother or sister, then he is a liar. And anyone who does not love a brother or sister whom he has seen cannot possibly love God who he has never seen. And this is where we all clutch our pearls and we become faint with the idea that we hate anyone. We tell our kids, don't, we don't hate people. You might not like them, but we don't hate. And this is where you go, Reverend, I don't, brother, I don't hate anyone. <laughs> I pray for my enemies. I don't like them. I don't like this president. I don't like our governor, but I don't hate him. Mm. So, <laughs> Proverbs, which you don't have in your notes and it's not on the screen, Proverbs 10, 12 describes... Hate is this, hate loves to argue over things. Hate loves to debate, hate loves to stir it up, but love overwhelms others by covering, overlooking and forgiving their faults. So when we say we don't hate, I don't know that we really, really understand what hate looks like when it's exercised because when we get online or we get into these discussions and we argue, if you've ever noticed, most of the time when we're arguing our virtues versus God's values, we will argue among an audience of people who already agrees with us. We're just arguing against the straw man that's not in the room. And we get others who will get us um, further worked up. But I like this, Galatians 5, through 23 says this. The Holy Spirit produces a different kind of fruit. This is what you have as a follower of Christ or we all should have is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if he is affecting our DNA, then this is what we look like. Unconditional love, joy, peace is what you feel even though everything around you is tumultuous and turning and disrupted patience kind-heartedness, goodness, faithfulness, staying true to the values of God, gentleness and self-control. You won't find any law, any law opposed to fruit like this. Here is what he's saying right here. Listen, Paul is saying this, that no matter what law you're using to rationalize and, justi- rationalize and justify your behavior, there is no law that stands in opposition of behaving like this. No law gives you permission to act opposite of that. 
No law that you're using to beat up people gives you permission to do that because that is the law of Christ. And so if whatever your virtues are lead you to do anything other than that, that is generated from you and not from the heart or the mind of God. Number two, going to be shorter. Take a deep breath. I can increase my Christ-like DNA by making careful choices about who will mentor me today. So for the sake of our conversation, we're going to say that a mentor is anyone who we allow to shape our thoughts, our beliefs, our words, or our actions. Anyone that we allow to impact us to the degree that we've changed, shaped, um, evolved, or devolved our behavior. And with that definition, let's concede then that a mentor could be anyone whether you want them to be or not, we have deferred the role of mentor to anyone who has that ability to change the way we think, feel, behave, act, whatever. And that mentor can be somebody different every single day. Because on any given day, the one who can bring out the worst in us or the one who can bring out the best in us by something they do, say, or believe, or act, They are our mentor because they have shaped our behavior. They have shaped the way we think. They have evoked a response from us. We followed their lead. They are our mentor, whether we like that or not. Because the person you see that posts something online that evokes a reaction from you is now teaching you how to respond because you fell victim to your emotional reaction You get engaged and you change your behavior to respond to this person. You see how a value though might think, well, that person's belief does not at all affect or impact. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, Lisa and I have been married now for uh, 29 years. And in the course of that time, thank you, high five to to me. I've been a patient, loving husband and I'm I'm going to keep being that way. I might be sleeping on the couch tonight, but I will be. In the course of that time, countless people have had extramarital affairs. Numerable people, people that we know have committed adultery and their behavior does not at all impact my marriage. Are you connecting the dots, how worked up we get about other people and it does not change the values that we live by, that we propagate and promote and teach and advocate in our own kids' lives? I am the greatest pastor, not of you, but of my own family. I have that influence. You do as well in your home. Shape the people who God has given you to shape. And remember, Paul said, who am I to judge the outside world? I don't judge the world. If anything, we're given permission to judge each other. And if you watch Paul judge each other, he says, do it with grace and kindness. And if you see somebody fall, don't judge them or condemn them, but rather restore them gently and be careful because you're prone to fall too. He says that we should meet each other with grace and compassion, that we should tolerate each other, that we should overlook each other's wrongdoings. 
Listen to what Proverbs 13, 20 says. It says, become wise by walking with the wise and hang out with fools and watch your life fall to pieces. If you want to know where your behavior comes from, it is because you are allowing that type of person to influence you and mentor you. The people that you dislike the most are evoking the worst in you. You are being mentored by that which you don't want to be. I mean, I see people all the time. Listen, as teenagers, we run as far away from being our parents as possible. We swear on everything holy. We make a vow on the Bible. We cross ourselves. We do whatever we can to vow to God we will not become our parents. And then by 30, our kids are going, you sound just like grandpa. Grandpa says that all the time. (laughs) Paul said this to his own church in 1 Corinthians. He said, follow my example, not just my example, but follow me as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, follow what you see in me that looks like Jesus. And I will tell you this, if the people that are evoking from you your best or your worst don't look like Jesus and aren't followers of Jesus and aren't bringing out, because I will tell you this, there are those who are not Christ followers who behave more like Christ than there are those sometimes who are Christ followers and behave nothing like Christ. So I believe that you can learn from those who are not Christ followers, but have Christ-like behavior in their life. I'd rather someone who's virtuous, who treats people with kindness, who's patient and forgiving and has the fruit of the spirit in their life, who does not claim to be a Christ follower, influencing me and my family than I would somebody who calls themselves a follower of Christ and acts like a complete idiot. Hopefully that makes it into, uh, Pastor Jamie always does a little blurb during the week and maybe that'll be the complete idiot. Third and finally is this, and Gavin, you can come up. I can increase my Christ-like DNA by spending my percentages on high return investments. So imagine yourself shipwrecked on an island by yourself. And you now have to urgently begin to shelter yourself and try to survive and look for food and forage and now consider also that there might be a chance of rescue still so you should begin to plan for that, and you've got to decide what to do with your day. How to make the best use of your time, because you won't survive long against the elements and against uh, animal attacks and against uh, sickness and infection and against spending the rest of your life on this deserted island unless you move into action quickly. Now let me pause and say, I'm a bit of a clean freak. And um, I can't work in my office at home unless my bedroom is clean. Wow, exactly right. Yes, all kinds of neuroses that go on in my head. So before I go to work and I start studying for my message, I will uh, make the bed and I'll pick up my shoes and I'll put them in the, the shoe hanger thing and I'll hang clothes and I'll make sure that room is clean because if not, mentally I cannot, I just can't go down the hall into my home office and start studying. Now, it, it makes me feel better that the room is clean and it makes me, I'm more focused that way. I will tell you, it feels better. It is not a good use of time. 
because I only have so much time to devote to on Thursdays is when I write my outline and gather my scripture. And then on Saturday, I finish writing everything I'll say. And if I use any moments of any of those days on anything else, I'm consuming time that I would be better giving to the task at hand. Terrible use of time is what I'm saying. Makes me feel better. And if I were stranded on this beach and you were stranded on this, your own deserted island, and like me, you were like, well, first off, this island is a mess and I'm not going to get anything done until this gets cleaned up. And I pick up the palm fronds and I, and I pick up the coconuts and I scrape up the seaweed and I think, who in the world left this place like this? This is terrible. And I get it nice. And then the day is almost consumed with cleaning up this beach and I still have not built shelter. And a storm's moving in and I still haven't foraged for any food. I haven't gone and gathered berries or tried to catch a fish or anything like that. So now I'm going to be hungry and I'm going to go to bed cold and wet because... There has to be a point in which you accept that as important as it feels to you to do this thing, it is not that important compared to the thing that is more important. And I get it that we feel like we're supposed to be taking a stand and as Christians, we're supposed to be making our voices heard. But there are things that the Bible tells us are more important that we should be giving our biggest percentages too. And let me tell you what they are. First is just praying, sincerely praying for those who actually shape and influence the world that we live in. First Timothy 2, 1 through 4 says this. So first and foremost, first and foremost, above all things, I urge God's people to pray. Ask yourself this question, all these emotional responses, all these verbal responses, all of this anger, all of this activism that you feel, how much time have you spent legitimately praying for these issues, legitimately praying for leaders? They should make their requests, petitions, and thanksgiving on behalf of all humanity. You are standing in the gap for humanity. And it says this, teach them to pray for kings or anyone in high places for that matter. So that we can lead quiet, peaceful lives. Pray for people so that it brings peace to us, reverent and godly and holy, all of which is good and acceptable before the eyes of God, our Savior, who desires for everyone to be saved and know the truth. Can I tell you that there's nothing more important than that last sentence? God wants everyone to be saved and to know the truth that Jesus Christ loves them and he laid down his life for them and nothing could be more important for us to pray for to happen in our world. And secondly is this, to become an influencer of culture through living a life that people respect so that we have a voice that people trust. Because if people don't respect you, they're not going to listen to you. And if they don't listen to you, then you have zero influence whatsoever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 says this. This should be your ambition to live a quiet life. This should be your priority to live a quiet life, minding your own business and doing your own work, just as we told you before. As a result, people who are not Christian will trust people who are not Christian. The unbeliever will trust and respect you and will not need to depend on others for enough money to pay your bills. In other words, 
they will not lose respect for you because you're living a life that is full of respectable things. There are a lot of reasons that the world has to not respect the church today. And it's because we are big on bloaty hot air. We love to talk and condemn. And there's a pastor who's been on the news and he's taking his big bold stand against another group of people. And it really is, it's an embarrassment. I wish I wish I could get on the news and say, hey, so just know there are churches that don't act like this, that don't think like this, that don't treat people like this, who have not made the world their enemy, but rather see the world as God sees the world. Because I will say this, the person we hate the most, that we stand against the most, there is not one difference between how much God loves that person and how much God loves us. The fact that we are followers of Christ does not mean we have greater love from God or greater grace from God. Or there's not more forgiveness offered to us. We have simply crossed a line of receiving the gift of grace. That's it. That's the only difference. We are still sinful people who are still in need of grace. We are still prone to be judged by God if he chose to do so, but we are not more loved. So why would you treat anyone as if God loves them any less? Amen, amen. Third and finally is this, the third way is to become an influencer of culture through building up God's kingdom instead of tearing down the world around us. Listen to what it says in Acts 2, 44 through 47. This was the early church. This was post Jesus, them figuring it out on their own. There was an intense sense of togetherness among all who believed. They were united and man, I wish the church could go back to that. They shared all their material possessions in trust. They gave generously, they sold their possessions and goods that did not benefit the community and then used that money to help anyone in need. They were unified as they worshiped at the temple day after day. In other words, they didn't let peripheral things or preferences or methodology of worship interfere. And we all have those, but they prioritized the worship over preference. In homes, they broke bread and shared meals with glad and generous hearts. Next, they, the new disciples praised God and they enjoyed the goodwill of all, listen, all the people of the city. They enjoyed favor and goodwill from the community, not just the church. Day after day, the Lord added to their number. Everyone was experienced liberation. That means everyone who was being saved, everyone who was becoming a Christ follower. You see what they did there? There was no tearing down. There was only building up. They built up the kingdom in their homes. They built up the kingdom in the temple. They built up the kingdom in their personal lives. They built up the kingdom in their finances. They built up the kingdom at mealtime. They built up the kingdom in everything they did. In the community, they were 
building and establishing the good things of God instead of tearing down the world in which they live. We as followers of Christ have to stop burning it down to the ground and instead step into the culture that intimidates us so much that we are so afraid of and begin to build up the values that God loves so much and that is changed lives, people finding Jesus, the liberation that comes through a relationship with Christ. Instead of tearing down, let's build up. Amen? If you will, bow your heads and close your eyes. There's nothing spiritual or magical about that other than it gives you just a moment to reflect. I have many times waved the flag of virtue instead of held tight to the deeply tethered value of God's heart and mind on an issue. Because it feels like I'm missing an opportunity to change a mind or influence somebody. I have to be heard on this. I have to take a stand on this. And I will tell you, in all the history of social media posts, and all of the arguments had around a table, a mind has rarely, if ever, been changed and a heart not moved. But a life of reputation that a believer, an unbeliever, an atheist, a hater of God cannot argue with a life worthy of respect a life that builds, a life that gives hope and compassion and extends kindness and behaves with the mind and the, the actions and the words of the God we say that we love and follow, that life cannot lose the respect of those who know that those are real things in our life. Those are real tangible values that can be measured by what we actually do and how we talk to people and that our beliefs are more than just ethereal, smoky, vaporous, intangible theories of our life. We are quiet and respected and established builders of the heart and the mind of God in our homes, in our schools, in our community. And when people begin to respect, they begin to trust. And when they begin to trust, they begin to allow a voice of influence. And listen, then God adds to the kingdom. God uses our lives to establish in the hearts of people his legitimacy, his authenticity, I don't blame people for doubting a God that Christians of 2023 advocate for. I would run for the hills from that God if he looks anything like Christianity today. But that doesn't have to be the mark, the stain. That doesn't have to be the reputation of this body of believers. I can't control who makes it onto the news because of their hate for the world. 
but I can continue to live out the values that earn us the respect to speak on behalf of a God who loves this world desperately. And if you say, I want to be a part of that, I want to be marked by that, when I feel somebody mentoring me, voluntarily or involuntarily, when I feel someone evoking a change in the way I think and, and I feel them stirring me to bring out the worst in me, I instead will turn my focus, attention, and be discipled and mentored by that kind of person like Paul who as they follow Christ, I can follow their example. You say, I want to be surrounded by those kind of people. I want to follow those kind of people. And I don't want to be just a hearer of the word, but I want to be a doer of the world. I don't want to consume it, whether in Bible study on my own or in service and not do anything. God commanded me through his word to act like him in this world. And I want to do just that. And if any of that sounds rings true in your heart, would you just say, yeah, that's me. I want to do that. Yeah, you can lift your hand. Just say, that's your commitment today. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to leave the genetic marking on our lives because we might be German or Italian or Scandinavian or Asian or Hispanic or whatever it is that we are marked by in this world. The DNA we want to see most pronounced in our lives is Christ written all over our words, our thoughts, our beliefs, our behaviors, our actions, our reactions, the things we do online, the things we do in private, the things we do in public, the things we do in our marriage, the things we do at work, everything we touch and feel and experience, we want it to be marked by the genetics of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Help us, Holy Spirit, to make that so, to make it true, to not be just hearers of your word, but daily doers of what you've commanded us to do. We believe for it. We accept it and receive it as if it's already been done. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen.